Hello, my name is Jody Lima, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Today, I'm going to talk to Lindsay Lackey. Uh, she's author of the middle-grade novel All the Impossible Things, and we're going to talk about the third book of the Chronicle of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Now, there's one thing I need to point out first. In the interview, Lindsay says that her novel will be coming out in September. So you might be thinking that since it's October, she must be talking about 2020. But she's not. She's talking about 2019. Because, of course, I talked to her earlier in the year when the book hadn't come out yet. So it is available now, and please do check it out. Uh, today I picked out a poem to read uh, before we get started. Uh, it's one I found in the poetry collection, All the Wild Wonders, Poems of the Earth. Uh, this book was edited by Wendy Cooling, and it was illustrated by Piet Grobler. And the poem I'm going to read is called All the Wild Wonders, and it was written by the Australian children's author Elizabeth Honey. All the Wild Wonders For you, my sweet babe, I wish fish in the sea, birds in the trees, Tigers and jungles, and all the wild wonders, all the wild wonders, for you, my sweet babe. For you, my sweet babe, I wish carpets of wildflowers, beetles and butterflies, bright birds of paradise, and all the wild beauty, all the wild beauty, for you, my sweet babe. For you, my sweet babe, I wish wind for the albatross, clear flowing rivers, forests of giants, and all the wild wonders. All the wild wonders for you, my sweet babe. For this wish to come true, we have much work to do. All the wild wonders, all the wild wonders for you, my sweet babe. My guest today is Lindsay Lackey, author of the debut novel All the Impossible Things. You can find Lindsay's website at www.lindsaylackey.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Lindsay. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. As I mentioned, you've got uh, a, a novel coming out, a middle grade novel, um, All the Impossible Things coming out in uh, September. Can you talk a little bit of what that novel's about? Sure. All the Impossible Things is about an 11-year-old girl who's in foster care in Denver, Colorado, and she accidentally causes tornadoes when she's upset. So it's a realistic portrayal of her life, but there's a little magic thrown in there as well. And she goes to live with a new foster family at the very beginning, and they own a petting zoo that has all sorts of rescue animals in it that are all a little bit quirky, um, including a 400-pound tortoise named Tuck Everlasting. And it's just the story of this girl, her name is Red, um, trying to find her place in the world and where she fits. And she really wants to be reunited with her mom, who's in prison. She's waiting for her to be released. But she also is discovering that this family is is a good fit for her. And that's a little bit hard for her to accept. And where did the idea for this story come from? It's actually inspired a lot um, by my own family's experience. My aunt and uncle about 10 years ago, they it was a second marriage for both of them. They're both in their middle age and they had grown children and even grandchildren, but they decided to start fostering kids um, instead of being empty nesters and traveling the world like a lot of us might be tempted to do. And they were fostering children, and one day they were at an event, and my aunt saw a little girl across the room, and she just had this deep, unshakable knowledge that that little girl was going to be her daughter one day. 
And sure enough, through a series of events, they did end up fostering her and then adopting her a few years later. And I just loved that idea of a middle-aged couple um, making space in their lives to provide a safe, loving home for kids. And that's really where it all kind of grew from. Uh, was there a little a bit of the book you wanted to share? Sure. I would love to read the first page of it, really. Um, the main character keeps a journal full of impossible things. And so throughout the book, there are these journal excerpts. So I'll, I'll just read one of those for you. Bumblebees are impossible. They break the rules of physics. Their tiny wings should not be able to carry their fat little bodies through the air. The truth is, a bumblebee's wings work differently than people realize. For a long time, everyone thought their wings flapped up and down like a bird's, but they don't. Their wings actually flap forward and back really, really fast. So fast that a bumblebee creates its very own tornado. And that tornado picks up the bumblebee and carries it from one place to the next. Which, if you think about it, doesn't seem impossible at all. And is it that it's actually how bumblebees actually fly too, right? It is, yeah. You find out later in the book, too, that um, they actually create two separate tornadoes, one under each each wing. So these little vortices that their wing, their the air current their wings create lifts them up. And so that's why they're kind of unstable. They have two separate tornadoes, basically, spinning under each wing. And it makes a very nice metaphor as well. Yeah, it worked perfectly. I was pretty happy when I discovered that. <laughs> now, I said it's your debut novel, but it's not your first published book. You actually have a number of uh, reader guides that you published as well. Yeah, well, I they were published in the back of um, books. So I worked um, for Penguin Random House for a few years in marketing and publicity. And when I was there, I made a connection with an editor who I remained friends with after I left. And there was an opportunity for them to reprint um, about 10 titles written by Madeline Langle. It was some of her nonfiction work, um, her spiritual nonfiction. And so they actually asked me, knowing I'm a huge Madeline Langle fan, they asked me if I would write their reader's guides for those. So I had a great time. I got to really dig into 10 of her books. A lot of them I hadn't actually read before I did this. And so I was really able to engage with the text in a new way and ask questions of readers and sort of shape a conversation for the reader when they're going through the books in a book group or on their own. Now, so even though this isn't your first real sort of publishing experience, I imagine that having a novel come out, a novel um, that you wrote, um, is a very different sort of experience. I'm just wondering, can you describe a little bit about what that has been like for you? Sure. To be honest, it's a dream come true, and I just can't believe that it's happening to me. It comes out on September 3rd, so we're less than a month away from it now. And I have always wanted to be a writer. I've ever, since I was a kid, I've written and I've written books. You know, I didn't just write down stories. I would actually take paper and fold it in half and staple it and draw the cover image and all of that. So this is a dream I've had my whole life. And after college, I tried to very hard to work in the book industry as much as I could. I worked in a used bookstore. I worked in a public library system for about five years, and then I worked in actual publishing. And all the while I was writing on the side. And so I've probably written five or six what I call practice novels. Um, none of them are any good or going to see the light of day, but they all taught me a lot about the process. And so to now have, uh, this was the first book that I actually ever sent out to agents and I ended up signing with my absolute dream agent, which was an incredible, incredible 
experience to have that dream come true. And then um, she is amazing. And she actually sold my book at auction. So I just had this incredible, surreal, best case scenario experience for my first book in every way. And I just, I love my publisher and they've been really supportive of it. So it's really fun. And I'm pinching myself every day because <laughs> it's just amazing. <laughs> now, it's interesting. Uh, I think people don't realize, I think your experience of having written, you know, several books sort of as practice before uh, being, you know, writing this one book, that's, that's not an uncommon thing for writers to do, mm-hmm. that it actually takes a long time. Uh, yeah. to sort of develop those skills to get to the point where you really uh, have that book that you really feel is just the book that speaks for you. Right, right. Yeah, I the other books that I wrote were actually all YA. Um, this was the first middle grade book that I wrote. And when I got the idea for this, um, my family had recently gone through the adoption process with my cousin. And I had this idea, but it just... I didn't feel like I was ready to write it yet. Um, And I was working on another YA novel at the time. And I I kept feeling like, you know what, Lindsay, you don't ever finish a book doing revisions and everything. I would finish a draft and then kind of put it away. So I was committed to finishing this YA novel I was on for a long time. And so this idea for all the impossible things really was percolating for probably about three years before I started writing it. Um, And then I was on a trip to Hawaii with my husband, and there's a lot of influence (laughs) from that trip in this book. Um, And we were on an airplane, and I read Rebecca Stead's When You Reach Me, and I read it cover to cover on the plane, and I put it down, and I turned to my husband, and I said, I have to write my middle grade. That book just convinced me this is the path I need to go on, and I just suddenly felt ready. So a couple years later, here we are. A couple years and a lot of work later. <laughs> well, I, I definitely look forward to reading it. Thank you. Now, the book you chose is one of your uh, personal favorite kids' books uh, that you've read is uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And that's the, uh, it was first published in 1952, and it's the third of the seven books that make up the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, for readers who might not have read this particular book, can you describe a little bit what it's about? Sure. This is, like you said, the third in the Chronicles of Narnia series. So it it, it focuses on Lucy and Edmund, who are the brother and sister um, Pevensey children um, that are in the first book. So Edmund is the one that goes into the wardrobe and meets the White Witch and is sort of tricked by her. And Lucy's the one that goes into the wardrobe and meets Aslan and you know, they, she's sort of the hero of that story. So this is um, later on in their journey, and they end up with their cousin, who's a very unlikable young man. His name is Eustace Clarence Scrub. And as the first sentence of the book says, he almost deserved it, having a name like that. Um, And they end up sort of falling into a portrait of a ship at sea, and that is sort of this magical portal portal back into Narnia. So the three of them end up on the ship, which is the Dawn Treader. And they're with the current king of Narnia, Prince Caspian. And they're just on an adventure. Uh, the king has sailed to find these seven lords that were lost in, on a sailing trip in his kingdom. He's off looking for them. And so Lucy, Edmund, and Eustace all go along. As, and they just have all sorts of adventures. And when did you first encounter this book? Oh, you know, my dad started reading the Chronicles of Narnia to me when I was really young. So I honestly couldn't say when I first encountered this one, probably under the age of 10, but not 
Sure. I've read it so many times <laughs> in my life. The whole series I've read so many times in my life. I just this one just always really struck me though because it's pretty different since it all takes place on a ship and the others don't have quite the same feel as this one. Now, you mentioned uh, Eustace, who's a new character um, that's introduced uh, among the, in the Chronicles. And he said that th- there's that great opening line you mentioned. There was there once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, so what, what can you tell us about this this poor boy named Eustace? Eustace. Well, he is a little boy of no imagination, which I think C.S. Lewis probably saw as the ultimate crime against childhood (laughs) is to not raise your children with fairy tales and imagination. So he's, he's an only child. He's raised by two academic parents and he's just very serious. He's very snobby. He thinks he knows everything. So he's sort of an insufferable know-it-all and he has absolutely no language to go with this adventure that they go on. He later on in the book, he is actually transformed into a dragon And he doesn't even have the word dragon in his vocabulary before it happens to him. But Lewis says over and over in the narrative, because Eustace hadn't read any books about this stuff, he had no idea what was going on. So he's just a very unimaginative little boy that learns the hard way about magic, I guess you could say. Now, I've I've always liked the way that in this book, they uh, both enter and leave Narnia, this, this device of them going through this picture frame and then coming back through the picture frame. It just, it, I mean, even more than the wardrobe, it just fascinated me the way it was mm-hmm. described. And just what you thought about that particular device. And it always gave it, I thought gave it a kind of a dreamlike quality to the whole book. Oh. oh, absolutely. I think that's one of the things that drew me to it because I was a kid growing up in America in the 80s and 90s. We didn't have wardrobes. <laughs> I had to have that concept explained to me, but I knew what a painting was. And so for me, it made Narnia even more accessible. And I remember looking at paintings, you know, in museums or just in my house and thinking, oh, what, wouldn't it be neat if I could go into this painting and see what this world is like? So I, I agree. It really gives it a dreamlike quality. Um, but I think it also made it more accessible and a little more timeless because the idea of a wardrobe doesn't cross cultural boundaries as easily as the idea of a painting. And uh, this book is a little bit different from the others, too. I mean, it's part of the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, but uh, because it's about a voyage, it has a different kind of structure than the other ones. A lot of the other ones sort of build to a climax, sometimes a battle, but sort of build to a thing. This is more episodic uh, yeah. than the other books. I'm just wondering, what is it about that structure, of the, the sort of episodic structure of the book, that um, makes it a, a little bit different and more interesting? You know, it's funny because I don't tend to like episodic books. I I prefer books with an overall arc and character development and all that. And and I just finished this one again last night, as a matter of fact. And it, it really does, except for Eustace, it really kind of lacks character development. Lucy and Edmund start off believing in Narnia and they end up believing in Narnia. You know, there's no real change for them. Um, so it's funny that I was so drawn to it. But I I think the episodic feel of it makes it a little more bite-sized for younger readers. That's probably why I was drawn to it when I was really young, because every chapter is something exciting. A little tale is told in every chapter. And I, 
I think I, I really loved the effect of that because you could go into a chapter that's kind of scary, like the dark island that they go to where dreams come true. And if you really think about that, nightmares are coming true. You know, that's a terrifying place. But then you, after that, you can go to the island where they meet the star and they get to have the feast, the, the magic feast of on Aslan's table that the, then the birds come in and eat. So there, there's this light and dark balance between each chapter with the episodic feel that I, I really loved and continue to love. <laughs> but as you mentioned, you know, because it's episodic, there's a lot of different stories rather than sort of one story. You know, there's, as you mentioned, Eustace changing into a dragon. There's the story of the duffel pods, the pool that turns <laughs> everything into gold, um, the, the darkness. Is there one episode or one little story or even story arc that stands out for you? It's just, particularly uh, engaging. Yeah, I love the part where Eustace is transformed into a dragon. And reading it again this week, I was it's funny because it it's such an important part of the book to me that it has taken on a, its own life in my imagination. And so when I read it again, I didn't realize that Eustace being transformed out of being a dragon and back into a little boy is actually just something he relays. It's just dialogue. And he tells the story instead of us living it with him. But in my mind, I, I lived that moment with him. My That's the most vivid part of the book to me. So Eustace has been transformed into a dragon. He's, he's a very grumpy sort of burden to these sailors on this ship and they land on an island and everybody gets off the boat and Eustace wants to get out of doing work that everybody else is doing. So he sneaks off and tries to find a place to take a nap and he um, stumbles into a cave and he sees this enormous dragon come out of the cave and he's really terrified. He has no language for what this giant lizard-like thing is and it dies in front of him and he figures, okay, well, I'll go sleep in that guy's cave because he's not going to come back and bother me. So he goes and he finds this huge pile of treasure and being the greedy little boy that he is, he loads his pockets up and he puts a bracelet on his arm and then he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he has transformed into a dragon because he had these dragon-like greedy thoughts. And he is able to communicate well enough with the others to tell them who he is, but nobody knows how to transform him back. He can't talk. He's ashamed. He doesn't like to eat in front of them. And he just sort of learns this hard lesson <laughs> about life. And then he's undragoned. And that's the part that I loved so much as a kid, that Aslan comes and meets him and undragons him. And basically Aslan has to tear off Eustace's dragon skin. Eustace can't do it himself. And But when Aslan does it, it hurts. But then he's ultimately transformed back into a little boy. And it's almost even though he's somebody who pushes people away, it's the isolation of being a dragon and, and he realizes how much he depends on other people or needs mm -hmm. to be connected to other people that makes him change. Yeah. And it's funny because when he's a dragon, he's arguably much more useful. He's able to carry things for them. He can take them scouting because they can fly on his back and all of that. But he realizes how much use he wants to be as a person versus this beast of burden. And he, he really wants his personhood back. Now, even though this is episodic, there's a lot of different stories. Is there still, you think, some sort of overarching theme that ties everything together in this book? Well, it's C.S. Lewis, so I think there's always an overarching theme. I I really think this this adventure that these kids are going on 
teaches them to depend on each other and and reinforces those bonds of friendship and trust and um, you know, they each bring something different to the table. One of my favorite characters is Reepicheep, the mouse, and he is so brave. And that's a very admirable quality. He's not afraid of anything, but it kind of gets them into trouble. You know, he'll just jump into the water to fight a merman <laughs> that he sees raising a spear and they have to turn the whole boat around for him. And and so to have his bravery sort of countered by Eustace's cowardice at the beginning, and then they sort of balance each other out a little bit. Um, so there is that that learning to be a part of community and how important that is, that theme I think is really played out in, overall the whole story. Yeah, Reepicheep has the, an interesting uh, sort of ending in the novel. Well, actually, we don't really know what happens to him, uh, but uh, the way he departs the novel is, yeah. is interesting. I'm so tempted to write fan fiction. What happened to Reepicheep? <laughs> but yeah, he, he ends up, sort of disappearing and we hope he's gone into Aslan's world, but we don't actually know what that is. And I was pretty disappointed by that as a kid, I have to say, because I loved Reepicheep and I didn't, it was almost like a death, him going to this place that nobody could follow. So that always made me sad. Well, it's interesting you say that. One thing, I was, as I was rereading uh, this novel, it's always been one of my favorite of the Narnia novels, but uh, there's, there's always part at the end of the novel that's never quite sit well with me and maybe it's just me uh but it's 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 not that so much as when lucy and edmund are told at the end of the book they'll never be able to mm. return uh to arnia and it's probably just yeah. me that it doesn't sit well but and maybe i'm missing uh, something there but <laughs> i don't know what you thought about that uh part no i i totally agree with you that part breaks my heart and i don't even know how to <laughs> yeah i i agree i think it's really sad that that they're not able to return to Narnia. And it's interesting that Aslan is saying, I'm in your world too. I'm just by a different name and you need to find me there. And, and I understand the importance of we can't live outside of our own reality too much. It's important to have imagination and it's important to experience things beyond your own world um, in a sense. And for them literally beyond their own world. But you need to be present in your own life, I think is ultimately Aslan's message. You need to find love, find community, find purpose in your own life, which is really important. But on the other hand, it's Aslan and it's Narnia. And it's very heartbreaking. So I agree. It's it's very bittersweet. Mm. Yes, it, I forgot to mention Aslan does show up from time to time, just almost little cameo appearances mm -hmm. in the book rather than being a big part of it, like I think he is in the first book. Yeah, yeah. But every time he's there, you just want to hug him and bury your face in his mane. <laughs> Which I think is what I don't think Lucy, Lucy is the only one who actually does that most of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she has a very special relationship with him. Are there any particular passages that stand out for you that you'd like to share or talk about? You know, I have several marked here. You think that I would have thought about this before. Um, but I... I do. I really love the scene when they are um, in, going into the dark island and they're just sailing. They've already sailed to it. They've picked up a passenger who has told them this is a horrible place. We need to get away from here. And so they're trying to sail away from it. And they see this light, almost like a light at the end of the tunnel, but they can't ever get closer to it. And so everyone's starting to panic. And Lucy calls out to Aslan and says, if you ever loved us, please help us now. 
And this bird, this albatross appears and comes in and it calls out in a strong, sweet voice what seemed to be the word to be words, though no one understood them. After that, it spread its wings, rose and began to fly slowly ahead, bearing a little to the starboard. Drinian steered after it, not doubting that it offered good guidance, but no one except Lucy knew that it circled the mast and had whispered to her, courage, dear heart. And in that voice, she felt sure was Aslan's. And with the voice, a delicious smell breathed in her face. And I love that moment. I think that line, courage, dear heart, is one that people have pulled from this book and quote a lot. But I just think it's so beautiful that that Lucy calls out to Aslan. He saves all of them, but she's the one that he comforts in that moment and says, courage, I'm with you. So I love that. Well, I think that whole passage through the the dark waters is both is spooky, but very familiar in some ways. I think yeah. people have, you know, it's both figurative and in you know, a literal and figurative sort of um, mm-hmm. uh, dark moment of the novel that, and, but then, you know, finding a passageway is, I think, is, it probably speaks to people in many different ways. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Lindsay, thank you so much for uh, picking this book, gave me a chance to reread it again. Like I said, it is actually uh, one of my favorites of the Narnia series. And thank you so much for talking to me today about it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. You can find Lindsay's website at www.lindsaylackey.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can visit me at jleemont.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And if you'd like to participate in a Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. <laughs>